Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. Welcome to today's episode. This episode with Tara Caffell was recorded several months ago. As you might notice, a bit of our uh, date marking within the episode. Tara is a certified life and relationship coach, a management consultant, and she's very fluent in grief. And on this episode, we're going to hear her talk about some of her experiences that she's had that affected her life greatly, and her unique perspective on grief, um, her love affair with grief, if you will. Sit back, enjoy, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, Tara, thank you so much for being with us today. I am really tickled to be here. Oh, that's great. So full disclosure to everybody listening, Tara and I don't have a great big history together. I don't know so much about her. So I, like you, am just really, really anxious, Tara, to hear your story. Let us know how loss and death and grief has affected you and um, just take off. And I'm sure I'll be jumping in with some questions. Okay, I will do just that. Um... So it, it, my grief story began long before I really recognized it. Um, but it really kicked off in 2015. I had, um, I enjoyed a really great relationship with my ex-husband. And in the fall of 2014, he called me because he had tried to take his own life and was not doing well. Uh, his relationship after we broke up had also broken up and the woman had basically walked out the door and left him very, you know, lost and ungrounded and all of those things. And so I was still very much his person and I, I was at his side and I took him to and from appointments and I ran to his apartment to be with him when he was scared and, and being with someone who's not confident he can keep himself alive was very, very, I don't know, bone chilling, vulnerable, shame, all those things got stirred up. It was very, very hard to be with. And he ended up taking his life on May 11th of that year. Successfully, obviously. Thank you. Um, It was, it was, oh, it was, it was the worst. (laughs) I still remember every acute detail of that day and every, every moment and every second leading up. Um, so he died. And prior to that, in March, my last grandfather had passed a uh, very old, ripe age. He had passed on. And then later on in the year, I lost a mentor of mine from university, was riding his bicycle and suddenly had a catastrophic cardiac event. I think that's what they called oh it. And he died on the spot. And And at the end of that year, one, a, a very old friend of mine who had been suffering with cancer for a long time ended up in hospice and died. And so I think it was mid-December and I was 
rocking in the corner and I didn't know what to do anymore. I couldn't even, I couldn't. And I, I am the child of a, a sober alcoholic, but a, he certainly wasn't when I was growing up. And so my way of being in the world is relentlessly upright. Like I'm always okay. I'm like the, mm. those punching bags that have sand in the bottom that, you know, that you punch them and they fall back and they bop right back up. And that's what I felt like for a long time. I Grief didn't phase me. Um, I remember hearing about people you know, losing others. And I would kind of skip over it. I never made space for grief and, and didn't respect it. And that year forced me to do it. To, it just, I had to stop and, and feel it. Uh, yeah. So at the end of that year, I just, I didn't know if it was going to work, but I, I absconded off to the beach for a few days by myself. And I had some conversations with the ocean because it's big and it can take it. And I, <laughs> I threw in what I didn't want anymore. I wrote with a Sharpie on these rocks on the beach, what I wanted to let go of and what I wanted to bring home with me. And it did shift it. I started hoping I started to write again, which is what I do for healing. You know, since I was a child, I've been a writer and yeah, I just started reaching towards seeking what is this about? There has to be something here for me. I don't know what it is, but there has to be something. And I think it was May of that following year that I started writing and I was at a retreat. There was a silent piece and I will always remember this day. We were trudging in the pouring rain through this enormous labyrinth in the woods. And, and at one point, instead of, you know, daintily stepping around puddles and covering my head with my hood, I just decided to surrender to it. And I actually took off my hood and I decided to just walk right through the puddles and get as wet as I possibly could and just be like, just surrender to it. And, and as I did, I, I, it was all, it was voices. It was the four guys that died that year saying to me, well, why do you think we all left at once? We wanted you mm. to figure this out. And it was humbling. Like, whew, yeah, that phrase just stuck with me. And, and so I think grief has been a tremendous exercise in surrender. And also the greatest love affair of my life. I, I love grief. I really do. I think it is the flip of joy. I think they walk hand in hand. Um, like I know I told you offline, I have a, a baby. And this is not a baby that I birthed. We adopted this baby. Uh, he came to us two months ago. Oh, and congratulations. That's thank you. There it is. It really is. And we waited a long time for him, uh, both through the adoption process and also like a, you know, a hunger in my heart. I wanted a baby for my whole life. And so he joined us and tremendous joy was in that moment, but also oh, big grief that, that it didn't happen a different way or that he had to leave his birth family and that his birth mother is not well enough to take care of him. 
and the grief that the foster family felt, right? Like every, it was all intertwined, these moments of gratitude and joy, but also of, of just humble gratitude at, at the grief that was there too. Um, I think these things all go together. And so this journey, this, <laughs> the, the year of grief, uh, I noticed what people said to me, and that's what I actually started writing about first, was the asinine things people would say to me, some of which I have not forgiven people. I try as I might, I can't forgive people for saying stupid things to me while I'm grieving. And I, I wish I could. Um, but I remember thinking, we've got to get better at this. Grief isn't going anywhere. Death isn't definitely not going anywhere. It's going to happen to all of us. And if we're showing up, if we're, if we're doing this right and loving the people around us and taking up space and connecting, we're going to have big grief too. And so we have to get better at it. We can't just throw out a, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And can you pass the ketchup? We have to pause in our own helplessness. When someone in front of us says, you know, my dad died or, you know, this tremendous loss has happened to me. We actually have to sit in the helplessness of we can't help you. We can't take that away. We can't make it better. All we can do is meet you where you are. And that's a really hard thing to do, to meet someone in, in their dark space where the ground is gone and, and feel how vulnerable that feels. I'm so sorry. And I don't know what to say. Rather than the flip, okay, I need to shut this person up and make them feel better and solve their problem. And oh, at least they had a long life. And oh, at least they weren't alone. And oh, shut up. <laughs> mm. um, we have to get better at this. And it means that we have to dig a little deeper and and be vulnerable together. Uh, and it's not going anywhere, right? We look right now, as we're recording this, we're in the summer of COVID-19. We're in the summer of Black Lives Matter protests around the world. We're in the middle of the most horrific human being running the United States that I've ever seen in my life. And grief isn't going anywhere. It's, it's ramping up, in fact. So yeah, we got to get better at this. That's all I keep thinking. Yeah. And I, I always think of as people are going on about the, the things that others say to them mm -hmm. that are unacceptable is there also is um, the fact that many of those people are also grievers, if not all of the people, I mean, we've all had grief, we've all had loss, but, mm -hmm. and I know there are a fair few people out there, you know, that can live to a, to a older age and not have had a deep or traumatic loss. But I, but I do feel in many ways it, it goes down to if you keep pulling away to look at the common denominator, it's about not only talking, not, we don't talk about grief, we don't, we don't acknowledge the death. And I guess you could say that's the whole, the same thing. Yeah. But um, I see them a little differently. You know, the, the, um, I'm married to a British man who was really brought up in that, um, stiff upper lip kind ah, of yes 
mm-hmm. mentality, right? And one night we were unpacking that and I started thinking about what would it have been like to be raising children when you've experienced the true threat of bombing in Europe within your you know within cities mm-hmm. you know, people places being decimated you know maybe that stiff upper lip came from the fact that that was how they coped so they didn't absolutely crumble True. and walk around mm-hmm. in their post traumatic stress every day um, which is what it would have been it would have been if you were in London and you heard of bombs in Berlin you know you would have known this too could be us so that got me out of the, in that headspace a bit of mm-hmm. really realizing you know how much of those really offhand comments may actually be rooted in death and loss and yeah, grief that's a good that point. was mm-hmm. not addressed yeah well and it makes me think of the privilege of grieving and how mm. we have often the luxury the time the the space and the support to go oh, I'm grieving this I'm going to sit in this and I'm going to write a journal entry about this right and really sink into it and ask what it's here for and and I you know in my situation I did not have children with my first husband um I was unencumbered I had a dog when all of this happened so I was able to really sink in and and I was also afforded the the resources um I had luck I luckily I had family who could support some of my work because I couldn't work uh for many months and and I realized the privilege in that that not everyone has that sometimes you have to pick it up and cope and get on with it and move forward and live because you can't be cut at the knees and sit and grieve you just can't mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. yeah right right there's yeah, it, it, it's interesting to look where privilege actually shows up, isn't it? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there, I mean, it's such a big unpacking to do, really. How are you raised? Um, how, how, you know, what do you have to fight mm-hmm. in your personal life and your personal being to find grief and to befriend grief mm-hmm. or befriend death? You know, there could be generationally you know, that could have just not been talked about ever. Yeah. You know? So much of it. Yeah, mm. for sure. Mm. Um, well, and I think what, so I'm, what I'm, what, and this brings me to what I'm working at right now. And this is the, it's sort of a cultural shift that I'm trying to drive where we, you know, at our dinner tables and our board tables and in our bedrooms and boardrooms, we are where grief is part of the conversation. It's not a conversation stopper. Um, Mm -hmm. it's, a you know, like picture a boardroom full of salespeople, 10 people in a room. We're all sharing sales numbers and, you know, Stu in the corner, it's his turn to speak in the round table. He says, guys, sorry. I, my wife had a miscarriage yesterday and I'm, I'm just not here today. I'm having trouble focusing. I'll get you the numbers later today. And, and instead of everyone kind of not knowing what to do and looking at their shoes and suddenly wanting to escape the room, someone says, don't worry about it. We went through that last year. Take all the time you need. We're here. Like instead of the status quo, what if we just slowed down and let it have a seat at the table? 
Um, because grief is, it's in our, our, it's in our deaths and it's in the deaths of everything that dies with us. Like our, our careers and our marriages and our life as we know it and, and the safety that we live within, all of these things die and, and more comes in, but we, I think we are kidding ourselves if we don't think we have grief around us most of the time. And, and it's, it's costing us our lives. Literally it's costing us money in our businesses. Uh, It's costing us precious moments that we could be actually connecting instead of Mm -hmm. brushing each other off perhaps, or not knowing what to say and, and hiding from it. Mm. So take us back to 2015 Mm. when the the male project of teaching Tara happened. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Face departures. Thank you very much. Um, Yeah. What was that looking like for you after, you know, just having to be there and be upright and as these deaths, I mean, I'm sure your husband, ex-husband taking his own life, you know, would have leveled you. And then, you know, tell us what, yeah, how do you, how do you do that? Were you just, just walking through? And I mean, do you remember it? I do know of something called grief brain. There are parts mm-hmm. of that summer. I did my taxes the following year and went, when was I in California? Like, Oh yeah, I went for ten days for right. I I blocked out a lot of that year. I don't remember a lot of it, and uh, I remember putting one foot in front of the other, and and the strange things that I would glom onto. Um, uh, I I didn't ask for help as much as I would have hoped I would. I had a friend who yelled at me a year later, and I said, "Well, I couldn't." stop. I couldn't fall apart. I had to keep going. I had a dog to walk. And she said, people would have walked your goddamn dog for you. And I just remembered that, that, oh yeah, I didn't ask for help. I didn't crumble. I didn't allow myself to crumble uh, at all. So I kept putting one foot in front of the other. I kept showing up. Um, I did what needed to be done which is kind of just how I operate. I, I get, I get things done. And, and then in the moments in between, I just endlessly sought comfort and learning and answers. And, um, I sought to make sense of something and to, you know, have, have a piece to stand on. Some of it was, no, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, were, were, was there, were there people who didn't get tired of it? Would, were there people close to you that were there throughout that all, all of it? Um, supportively. There, uh, my ex-husband was dating a new person by the time he died. And so she and I kind of teamed up interestingly to both kind of watch over him and keep him safe and do what needed to be done there until he died. 
And then after that, we kind of leaned on each other a little, but also grew apart a little bit too. Um, I had a close circle. Like I am, I worked, have worked for 12 years as a coach. So I'm definitely tapped into a therapeutic community and a, a very, you know, nurturing community where all I had to do was say a word and I had someone to talk to. And so I felt very witnessed and very, um, very held. And I, I was clear with people as well to say, you know, I'm not great company right now. I'm going to just warn you. So if you invite me to your dinner party, you need only give me a glass of wine and prop me in the corner and I will just be there <laughs> and I will leave when I have had enough. And that was an understanding that I made. Um, I kept in touch with people, but I do remember I had about a 30 to 40 minute window where I could be sociable and, and actually show up before I was looking over their shoulder at the clock. Can I go yet? And I'm also an introvert. So I just had to honor that I needed a lot of time by myself to get through this and, and to process what was happening. So I felt very held and I probably could have asked for a lot more than I did, but I didn't feel I didn't feel lost at any point in terms of like not having people around me. Mm. I felt like it was there if I needed it. Because I could see that being overwhelming for your supports as well. You know, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, As far as, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I've shot my helper wad. What what do I do now? (laughs) That's a good way to say it. Well, you know, it's interesting that when death occurs, the people around us, our family and our, our really close friends, they're the people who are most privy to what's going on, but they're also the least equipped to deal with it. Mm. And, and they can burn out fast. And, mm-hmm. and this is where if we don't have, you know, and who has the wherewithal to have boundaries and, you know, strong conversations about these things, because this is when it can go sideways, when we can have falling out so you just can't recover from because of the vulnerability in the moment. Um, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing that happens when Mm -hmm. it falls apart. Yeah. Mm. Well, and going back to your comment, I love grief. Mm. Um, something I refer to frequently, um, is full spectrum living. Ah. How, um, and, and I love it when people describe um, like death doulas that I've talked to. In fact, I think every death doula I've talked to talks about these moments where it's the, um, the messy and the beautiful, the tragic and the beautiful. And I'm wondering if that's what I'm hearing from you when you declare your love for grief, that that the full spectrum, you know, that, that if we're not fully there for grief, then are we fully there for joy is, yeah, tell me, tell me what exactly that apart for me a little bit. more. Yeah. It's well, it's, I just think of this. I don't even know. I'm not good with quotations. So forgive me, but this Mm. was in a book years ago. And, and the writer said, you know, you can only be loved to the extent you can only expect someone to love all of you to the extent that you have loved all of you. And I think this is true to every experience that, yes, I think we need, we can't move 
fully into joy unless we move fully into grief. And it kind of, it hit me in 2015. The, the way people hate Mondays, for instance, it has always bugged me. Like Mondays, that's a seventh of your life if you hate Mondays. That's really sad to me that you would hate a full day of the week. I love Mondays. I always have. I I always have. Uh, especially as a self-employed person, I, I love to set aside Monday for, you know, juicy writing things or projects. I don't often have clients on Mondays, that kind of thing. So for instance, I love Mondays. But it occurred to me that you know, Mondays can be quote bad, or they can be quote good, or they can just be a day of the week. We don't have to put a meaning to it. And, and I came to this space with death and grief that it is just death. And it's just grief. It's just joy. These are things that are going to happen. And they're part of life. And they're part of death. And we are guaranteed it. And most of the suffering that comes from loss and this part upsets people, and I get it, but I also don't mind saying it. Um, what makes death so awful is the stories we make up about its timing, or to whom it happened, or how it happened. But at the end of the day, it's just grief and just death. Like when someone, um, like when someone dies tragically you know, we come up with a story about it, that it was untimely and that they had children left behind and that they had a full life ahead of them. And yes, all of these things are true, but they're also meaning that we're giving to an event that is literally going to happen to all of us. And it it just equalized it for me that why wouldn't I love grief? Why wouldn't I love joy? All of it's here for me. And it's here to give me a, a richer, deeper, broader experience while I'm here to take up as much space as I possibly can and suck all of the marrow out of what's going on around me. And yeah, some of it will be from grief and death and some will be from birth and joy and, and everything in between. So death can still bring you to your knees. Oh, even yeah. Though oh, yeah. You feel. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's this sort of, you know, informed soul level kind of conversation where we know that death is just death and, and, and it's just merely our loved one leaving into a different room and, and so on, like a, a sort of a different way of looking at it. But then, yeah, there's this human piece of me that is still pissed off. Mm-hmm. that my ex-husband is gone and that he now can't meet my child and and that we can't be friends anymore the, the way that we were. And I can't phone him up and ask him about the stock market, right? Like I just, there's a very human piece of it that, yeah, I get it. And I can also recognize that, that, that I can get caught up in it, but I don't have to. There's more to it. Yeah. And I do think that different, deaths for different I mean I just think it's so different for everybody I guess Mm -hmm. that's the best way to say it you know rather than wait any particular death for different people everybody reacts differently um I find it interesting you know when you talk to mediums and I've heard some famous ones talk about the fact that as much as they're plugged into the other side 
believe in the other side. I can't remember. I want to say it was John Edwards, but I'm not positive, but whose mother died. And he was like, and I miss her so much. I miss her physical presence so much. It breaks my heart, even though I know, you know, I, I unequivocally in his heart, he knew, you know, that it was a beautiful story, what, mm-hmm. whatever that continuing story was. But, um, and, I, and that's really comforted me <laughs> throughout yeah. time, you know, to think like, yeah, it's, it's okay to be human too. It's okay. Um, it, it's, it's all, it's really full of cognitive dissonance, really the whole aspect of death. And it's most people's greatest fear. In fact, if you work with people who have anxiety, severe anxiety, and you unpack, you know, what are what is the belief beneath that simmering? It's usually a fear of death mm. or a fear of someone else's death, yeah. like the death of a child or something. I mean, yeah. and I, I guess it makes sense. Like a lot of times I like to look at, you know, what what are these things that are so common in so many of us? How did they keep us alive when we were the early humans, you know, what, what is it that might genetically be driven there? And I, I guess if you look at it that way, a survival instinct, you know, to not have your child falling off the mountain's edge when you come out of the cave or. Right. Yeah. And to not have know, be left behind to be eaten by lions because we were foolish. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it, it's fascinating that, yeah, at the end of the day, we are humans who crave touch and, and have memories and, and are vulnerable to these things that it, you know, it keeps us in this experience and, and, and perhaps there's a balance of, you know, being the mediums who recognize part of the other side of the curtain, but also, oh, I'm a very human, I'm a a human having a very human experience here. And, and I miss her. Of course, it's both, mm-hmm. both and there's, there's always two, the duality of it. And I guess what I'm hearing from you is much like our project, the, you know, how can we possibly have people become more open to the inevitability of death and more open to the, the beauty and the pain, um, is by having conversations and sharing stories yeah. and getting it out of the closet. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's been locked up so long. It really has. Well, and when we you don't know. acknowledge it, it has this crazy narrative. Like it creates, it creates havoc in our lives, um, you know, and how we show up and our habits and what we do for comfort and who we um who we go to for comfort and maybe what we do for work and how we treat our bodies and how well we sleep. And it affects everything. If we don't, and how we control ourselves and how we try to control other people. Yes. Is huge. Yeah. Yeah. A big, that's parents. Mm -hmm. It's a huge one, you know, that, and again, I'm sure it's somewhat genetically driven, but, but man, is it something to be aware of? Um, no matter what age, you know, no matter what age. Yeah. And even more so sometimes I think when they're, they're not with you anymore, you know, just that yearning for 
everybody to be safe. Yeah. Live long, happy lives, please. <laughs> you know, and I talk yeah. to parents, you know, I talk to parents who went through the unimaginable. And yeah, that's, you know, these stories still bring me to my knees. Mm. Not even my own stories, right? But, um, you know, listening to my guests and contacting to, or, you know, talking to people that I have contact with and their um, heart-wrenching losses, you know, so, so I, yeah, it, it's a, such a fascinating area. I, I still um, very much can see the untimeliness and tragedy and, you know, heartbreak it utterly. of it all. And, and that is, that's, that sinking kind of the floor is gone and, and, and the one person I need to tell about this is now gone, gone. Mm. And it these just very stark realities of it, of, of what is right. left. And it's, it's not the thing that we need or know or expect. Yeah. But it does when it's been people very close to you, it changes you. Oh, if you let it. Yeah, I, it, it um, really, I guess it changes you either way. If you stuff it and, and, you know, clench and hold tight um, and do everything not to think of a, you know, it's going to change you as well. It's mm-hmm. going to have its way with you. Grief is going to have its way with you yeah. one way or the other. So um, why not if give you look at, to it and let it, ha- let it give mm-hmm. you something that is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to change you either way. That's so true. And some of those like ways and, and, you know, the people, and not that it can't do this, even if you're riding the wave, you know, and if you're feeling everything, but just those, you know, maybe oversleeping, not sleeping, you know, over drinking, you know, eating too much, not eating, you know, all those little argumentative, not concentrating well at work, these kind of things when we're preoccupied with something so deep and heavy. Yeah. Grateful, grateful talk to us. And if we don't answer, it will keep knocking on other areas of our lives. So tell us about your work. Tell us what, tell us what you offer. What do you do? Well, so a long time or for a long time, I worked as a, well, many things within a coaching realm, but relationship coaching, I worked with birth coaching. I was a doula for a while, um, attending births and, and supporting couples as they became parents. And then sort of it shifted once all this grief hit me. And I went, oh, there's something here. And so I think I like to coach at the, at the sort of juncture of relationships and grief and how grief can affect who we are with the people that we love and, and who we are together in grief and so on. And, and now that has kind of morphed again into a bigger picture. So the, the way that I'm fixated on we need to get better at this, I think that our employers and our, our companies and our, as entrepreneurs, the, the companies that we run could be so much better at this. And it could set the tone for, because we spend the most time in our lives at our workspaces. And, and the crazy narrative that can come when we don't deal with our grief shows up in our workspaces. And it, it has a way of filtering out to productivity and people that we work with on our team and how safe everyone feels. And so what I'm working at now, it's called grief at work. And so we're bringing into our workspaces a full sort of holistic view of how is grief affecting your business? 
and your bottom line and your staff and how might they feel safer or more empowered or how might they be able to actually support one another instead of like if we think of a guy who's getting divorced in a company like a small team of maybe 20 people so dude is getting divorced and is not doing well <laughs> is not is not open to to learning is just kind of clenching and getting through it and he, and so he may not be able to cope after a while he may drop things he may hurt someone at work especially if it's in manufacturing say uh, so there's danger things there. And then he may just check out and leave for a couple of weeks. Who knows where he goes and, and maybe toxic when he gets back. And so if we think of the, the ripples around this guy, we've got the people he works with. We've got the clients he was perhaps selling to or assisting on the outside. We have the employer themselves who's trying to be supportive and doesn't know how to do it. And is also worried about the bottom line and worried about the rest of the staff and and doesn't know what to do with it. And so my my thought is, let's go into our workspaces. Let's create people who know how to be there with each other and for each other. Employers who know how to get the, the right support. And I don't mean an employee assistance program. I mean some specialized uh, training around grief and around loss and supporting and holding the staff as they do this. And then also creating policy around this. Most companies have a five-day bereavement policy. So your spouse dies, guess what? You get five days and then get back at it. We want you in, we want you in next week because you've got this big trip. You should be over it by now, right? <laughs> and and that's just simply not enough. Even for someone who is not your spouse, but someone who's removed slightly from you to pass away, we need more time. Grief is not a linear process. It's not a, oh, it started on the 5th, so it should be done by the 20th. (laughs) No, it's going to run back and forth and all over the place. And so we need to create these grief policies that, that can actually support and recognize that taking a day now means that we we don't lose out on two weeks of productivity down the road it actually means that we're dealing with this now and that we can be more productive because we've dealt with it now and taking a break sort of gearing down to speed up the whole idea of retreating in order and resting in order to show up and be bigger and better more later on um So yeah, so it's working with companies to do this kind of work. And it means I go in and I look at, you know, how are we doing and what kind of events have we had and how can we onboard the staff to this kind of thinking and support of one another? Um, How can we have them opt in to get some grief support? And sometimes it is literally an hour is all they need to touch in and go, here's what's happening. Help me have some tools to make sense of this just to, to bring it home or to, to be able to get through to my next stage where I'll come again. Sometimes it's just an hour is all people really need. But if you don't have it, then it becomes a, a greater need and a bigger hole that we're filling. So, so and it sounds it like if a business just has more fluency yeah. around it as well, yeah. then it creates a space where you don't have to necessarily 
like I can't imagine myself going back into that because I have to be this different person. Yeah. If if there's an environment created where they can hold that, they can hold you and whatever you show up with. Yeah. And that, yeah, we get it. You may have a breakdown and here's the space, you know, or go take walks. Yep. Yep. You know, and- go to the park, come back when you pull your... You know, because some people, it's interesting, and you know this, if you've worked with people, some people really, really, really thrive off that structure. Mm-hmm. And some workplaces, it makes it feel like it's either or. Like, you either got to come back and be on top of your game 100%, or you stay home. Yeah. We don't want you unless you can give us, you know, your 110%. Yeah. But that's because we don't, you know, that again, that's workplaces that aren't having a conversation about it. When my father died, I worked at a hospital as a nurse and I had three days. Oh, <laughs> see? They gave me, I took more, t- I took time without, without pay, okay. you know, yeah. just because, um, to add another week to it or whatever. And, um, yeah, it was just in a hospital. I mean, that it's, hospitals can notoriously be the worst Wrong. with meeting their employees <laughs> as a yeah. human. It's so crazy. Well, I remember my <laughs> first mother-in-law, like of my first marriage, she died of colon cancer in 2002. And it was an eight week, um, eight week of illness up to the end that we knew she wow. was very sick. She'd kind of hid from doctors for a long time and then it was too late and she was very ill. And so, you know, we, we traveled to see, she was in a different town, of course. So we had to go back and forth and back and forth. And then she died. And I remember my employer made me use all of my holidays to go and be with her, be at the funeral with my husband and to take care of the arrangements and close up her house and all this stuff. And I just remember thinking, I'm never going to forgive you for this. Never, ever. I, I, I'm just beyond betrayed that I've shown up and I have come early and I've done my work and you are treating me this way. Oh yeah. Because even family leave act, it's without pay if you run out of your time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, it's just holding your job basically saying they can't fire you. Exactly. And okay. yeah, it was, and I, I think that the same way that I had people, you know, say kind of insensitive things to me, you know, as I was experiencing all all these losses, I feel like right now with COVID-19 going on and all of these things that are happening in the world, that our employers actually have one, one chance to say it right, right now. Like they can either show up for us and go, it's cool. I'm going to support you. How are you doing? Are you feeling scared at work? Like, what can I do to support you? Or they're shitting the bed. Mm. And I, I feel like, you know, there's a personal level that happened with people that I knew. And this is a work way that, that some companies are just falling down right now. And they may not get forgiven. And, they, and, and if you don't support people as human beings, it's going to affect how they show up for you. Right. Like instead yeah. of paying lip service to human resources, how about we just actually recognize that humans are the most important piece here. And we actually have to be nice and kind to one another. We have, since that's what we're talking about as well. Yeah. Black lives matter. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's start looking at what that really looks like. Yeah. The kindness. 
the time. Mm. Lots of grief going on Ooh. right now. Oh, swimming in it. Oh my. Mm. Yeah, it's a growth industry. It really is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. um and I I don't I I'm I'm scared actually for especially the men in our world who who aren't given tools to talk about what's going on, who who have perhaps been shamed by, about their feelings and told to shut up and to man up and be quiet about it. Um, we see a rise in Canada anyway uh, of suicide rates in men and, and an inability to cope with what's going on. And it really scares me that you can have a, a, an individual in front of you who looks perfectly fine and functioning and showing up. And then the next day is having these catastrophic thoughts where they may act upon them. And it's just, it's not, it's not okay. It's really not okay. So if we can create a world that supports the other humans in it, mm-hmm. it'd be so different. Oh. And we can't look at all of the atrocities in the face without looking at the, the grief and the loss that lies in its aftermath as well. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, historically, but then also just the day-to-day atrocities that are happening. Um, and yeah. We can't get into that. This is going to be aired quite a while from now. Okay. So <laughs> yeah. hopefully let's let's just be like, and then I'm sure everything's going to just turn into shifted. a beautiful world and yeah, and months down the road. Yeah. All yes. that we've been wishing for will have come to fruition and mm. oh, what a world it will be. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, Tara, th- tell us where people can get a hold of you at. Ooh, okay. Um, and we will have this on the program notes as well, okay, but just great. real quick for people, so, quick reference. My main website is thisisgriefatwork.com. And I also have a, a, a growing community on Facebook and it's called The Grief Room. Uh, in critical, critical incident stress debriefing, we have a room often in a building where we have a therapist and, and support and it's just a room for grief. And so that's what I've created is a space for people to come and just be with grief and be with other people with grief and let's lay it on out and, and just have it be part of the conversation. So that's on Facebook. And then of course my, my main website, which I still do a lot of coaching through is terracafell.com. Awesome. Yeah. And again, we will have all of that as a reference in the notes, in the program notes, so people can go there and click from there. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And huge congratulations to your new little family. Oh, thank you, Becky. It's pretty exciting here and exhausting. Gosh, yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> All of it. Yes. Yeah. May the, may the um, sleep fairy fly over <laughs> sprinkle, sprinkle sleep dust oh, yes that would be amazing yes <laughs> beautiful well i really appreciate your time today terry you take good care thank you becky bye We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. 
You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.